You are listening to the sermon podcast of Connection Church, a gospel-centered community on a mission to make much of Jesus in Sioux Falls, South Dakota. For more information, visit SiouxFallsConnection.com. Thank you for listening. So we've been, as a church, walking through the Gospel of Matthew. We have been uh, kind of trekking through this first book of the New Testament, the first of the four Gospels. And so if you don't have a Bible, if you don't have a device that'll get you one or internet access that'll get you one, there's a paperback Bible underneath the chair in front of you. I invite you to take that as our gift to you if you don't have a Bible and join me in Matthew chapter 7. Don't be afraid of the table of contents. There's a, there's a beautiful thing that happens when we open the Bible as we say the Bible begins to open us. When we begin to expose, or the word we use is exposit the text, the Holy Spirit actually begins to expose that which is in us and applies grace to that deeply. So we've been in Matthew chapter 7. This is the last of the three chapters that make up the most famous recorded sermon in history. Notice a Sermon on the Mount. So good news for you, this morning you're going to get to hear the greatest sermon ever. Not because I'll be preaching it, but because I'll be reading excerpts from it, right? So that's a win-win. I get to preach the greatest sermon ever. You get to listen to it. Praise God, right? So so as Jesus is introduced to us by Matthew, Matthew 5, 6, and 7, these three chapters, the Sermon on the Mount, his public teaching ministry is on display. In in this sense, his ministry goes public, and it is powerful and life-changing. It's riveting and shocking, as we'll even see as we wrap up this sermon next week. But here we are in the, the, the last third, that is the seventh chapter chapter, where Jesus is bringing it in, as we we would teach preachers and teachers, bringing it in for a landing, right? He's going to land the plane. He's going to conclude his his remarks to, to to lead these people in a certain place and get them where he has led them. And so he's wrapping up his time in public ministry and preaching in this particular setting in a way that that draws us to a very I would say a, 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 a crisis in which we must choose, we must, res- we must respond. He's going to say things that are intentionally provocative so that we know you cannot walk away unchanged. And so I want to warn you even, as we read these, these, last, these last two uh, weeks, we'll be in the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus is intentionally provoking you. And in many ways, and I'll say this again next week, if you aren't provoked by what Jesus is saying in, in an ongoing way, I would argue you have not heard him or listened to him. And so he's going to say some provocative things. So beginning in, uh, we'll we'll try to pick up where we left off in the seventh chapter of Matthew. I'll I'll begin reading in verse 7, and then we'll read from, we'll focus most of our energy on verse 12 through verse 20, where Jesus is wrapping up and summarizing all of the arguments about the kingdom that he's been making to bring it to a crisis, a point where you and I have to either accept or reject what it is that he's saying. So beginning in verse 7, he encourages us, as he began, with a picture of what God as our Father, as we know him in Christ, looks like. Ask and it will be given you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds, and to the one who knocks it will be opened. Or which one of you, if his son asked him for bread, would give him a stone? Or if he asked for a fish, will give him a serpent? If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask him? So, whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them. For this is the law and the prophets. Enter by the narrow gate For the gate is wide 
and the way is easy that leads to destruction. And those who enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow, and the way is hard that leads to life. And those who find it are few. Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? So, every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus you will recognize them by their fruits. The Sermon on the Mount ends with a call to a decision. And as Jesus has done up to this point, he's taught in metaphors. He does so again in such a way that calls and draws into stark relief one of two different ways to respond to what he's teaching. Now, he'll give different pictures next week, we'll see. But in this particular case, he gives us two different gates or paths. And then he says there's two different ways or uh, or methods of pointing to the kingdom of God. Now, next week we'll see there's, 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 uh, you'll see two different responses to Jesus, and you'll see even two different foundations upon which to build our lives. As if to say, there's only one of two ways to go here. And so he presents these possibilities and then explains where they will lead, where these kinds of responses will naturally end. And his message of Life in the kingdom, that is what it means to follow Jesus and live under his reign and rule, isn't necessarily with a summary of points, but instead an appeal to follow him, to trust him in the harder but ultimately better path. Because all along the way, Jesus has punctuated the sections of this sermon with, with pretty profound statements. You therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Chapter 5, verse 48. No one can serve two masters. You cannot serve God and money. Chapter 4, or excuse me, chapter 6, verse 24. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and then all these other things that we would otherwise have anxiety about will be added to you. Chapter 6, verse 33. And so this last section isn't another policy statement, as it were. Another profound summary, but instead a plea and an invitation to discern the outcome of our response to Jesus and his teaching. Whether we might just kind of nominally accept or apathetically adhere or to respond with a full-blooded commitment. That's what he means by pointing out the two paths the different ways of true and false declaration of his character. And so I want to put that on display for us. This week and next, Jesus is demanding a response. He is presenting this in a way that is intentionally provocative, such that if you, if you walk away from it thinking nothing in my life has to change, then just understand you've rejected 
who Jesus is and what he teaches. But if you walk away thinking that, you would have missed it entirely. So we see kind of three different sections here. You'll see, depending on your translation, there's kind of three sections we just read. The first one in, in verse 12 is a call to intentionally love. Verse 13 and 14 is a call to, for disciples, followers of Jesus, to expect things to be hard, lonely. And then the last section we read, verses 15 through 20, a picture of false and true prophecy that time will ultimately tell, a call to discernment. So the first part, verse 12, a call to intentionally love. Now, remember at the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus said very clearly, like, do not think that I have come to abolish the law and the prophets. Instead, I've come to fulfill them. I haven't come to wipe out the righteous demands of God's perfection. I've come to fulfill them. I've come to embody them. All that God has revealed about himself through the, the, the creation and prophetic narratives throughout the whole Testament, whole New, Old Testament are, are now visible in me. All of those promises we saw last week are yes in me. And so Jesus is not saying that we should ignore these things as he, as he begins to reinterpret or, or for, for us to understand a deeper understanding of, of what it means to obey. Remember he told us like it, it's not just that you should avoid adultery, it's just that lust is already a state of the heart that brings on God's judgment. It's not just that you shouldn't murder people, but even the, the, like the, 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 the desire to harm or to, to diminish a person's existence and to think less of them is already a form of murder in your own heart. And so he's saying, I'm not saying don't, He's not, I'm not saying abolish those things. I'm saying see how I will perfect them. And in me, you will have a righteousness you can't possibly imagine. But Jesus here says, whatever you wish that others would do to you, now I want you to do actively, intentionally, purposefully also for them. For this is in this way a summary of the law and the prophets. In many ways, he's summarizing right out of Leviticus, some of your favorite books of the Bible. I know that. Don't be afraid. I know every good Bible reading plan stops, if not dies, in Leviticus, but it's all about atonement, right? The dead center of the book of Leviticus is how God is, has made right your sin and mine. It's really beautiful. But toward the latter half of the book, he says, you shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people, but instead you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. And so this command of Jesus, what's later known as the golden rule even, we saw this in the, the book of James, chapter 2, verse 8, is that it's referred to as the royal law, summarizes the ethical demands of both the law and the prophets. Now, the golden rule is found in some other form in many other Eastern religions. But here's what's unique here. Those things are always found in the negative, Right? Do not do to others what you would not want them to do to you. You'll see this elsewhere. What's so provocative is that Jesus states it in the positive. He's not just saying avoid doing awful things to people that you wouldn't want them to do to you. He's saying intentionally go out of your way to do unto others what you wish they would do for you. This is unique to state it in the positive rather than just the negative. I mean, he's already told us that how we should treat people. But here he is, in many ways, encompassing everything that he's already called his listeners to listen to and then respond in a decisive way. 
For example, he's already told us that you, you can't give to the poor. To, you can't give to people in need out of, an, out of a desire to have a better reputation, to use them for something, or, or even use the people around you to prop up your own reputation. We're not to use people to advance our image. We're not to use someone we saw sexually, but, but rather to give ourselves fully. That is, we're not supposed to lust or simply use someone for something and, and in our own mind expect something of someone that we wouldn't expect to give our own lives for, right? To, to expect, in this case, like a nakedness in someone's mind that you would never actually give your own nakedness and vulnerability to. We're not even to use God in prayer to get something, but instead to relate to God as a father. We're not even to treat food wrongly or to, or to use others to appear as though we are something that we are not. A hypocrite, he said. And so here Jesus says, along those same lines, you are to actively pursue love and care and respect and compassion towards people to the same degree that you yourself would benefit from them. And just like last week, we were encouraged to never see someone outside of our own sinfulness and an awareness of our own need for God's grace, to, to be discerning then. This week, you see that we're never to see someone outside of love and the kind of treatment that we would want for ourselves. So last week, it was do not do this, do not do this, do not do that. But, but he turns as he wraps up and says, no, no, this is not something you just don't do. It's something you do. Think of it the way that it's typically held as a, as a kind of a speak, spoken in the negative. You could do nothing and be okay, right? Like think of it as like the Hippocratic oath that a doctor might take to, to do no harm. In that sense, you could do nothing, but that doesn't make you a doctor. In this case, you, you could just avoid doing awful things, but that doesn't mean you have, are rightly reflecting the heart of God in his kingdom. Here he says something in contrast to those Eastern prog- proverbs, and he pra- phrases it in the positive. Do. Whatever you wish other people would do to you, however you wish people would treat you, do that to others. Actively, intentionally, and purposefully perform acts of love and care for others. Why? Because this is a summary of who God is. This is the law and the prophets. This is the picture of God as he has revealed himself through Scripture Think of it this way, the ethical, results of God, the ethical result of God's revelation to us is love. Right, so Jesus is saying here, it may, maybe you have mastered or memorized Old Testament law. Maybe you're actively trying to impose it on others, right? But if that, isn't, if that doesn't change you into a person that has love for and a desire for others to experience the same benefit and comfort that you have, then you've missed them altogether, Think of how Jesus challenged the Pharisees in the Gospel of John. You, you claim to know the Scriptures, but you don't realize they testify about me. The ethical result, this command Jesus is giving here, is known as the golden rule. Right? Some of you may wonder where that came from. Uh, most most history, historians are, are a little bit confused about it, but their best, their best theory is in the beginning of the 3rd century, almost exactly 200 years uh, a, a Roman emperor, um, Alexander Severus, supposedly built a, a, uh, a private chamber in his house or in his palace, and the wall in gold was imprinted with this statement, thereby it kind of took on the meaning of the golden rule. Now, whether or not that actually existed or not, who knows? No one, no one usually gets into that room and comes out alive, right? So 
So in this sense, this golden rule, this thing that most of you would probably have heard before, oh yeah, do things, be nice to others in the way that you would want them to be nice to you. But it's, it's more than that. This ethical result of God's revelation to us is the death of self. Hear how provocative it is. You and I are now to take on a posture that says, I want for you what I want for me. And the death of what regularly comes out of our own hearts and mouths, which is, I only want good things for me. Hear hear the provocative nature of this. He's saying, you will no longer live as a person who only wants good things for you, to hoard them, to with a a mindset of scarcity to keep them for yourselves. Instead, in the same way that you want good things for yourself, you will die to yourself so that others will experience that same good thing. After all, John, in John chapter 15, Jesus says to his followers that there's greater, greater love has no one than this. You want to really love? You want to really care? Greater love has no one like this, that someone laid down his life for his friends. And so he's saying, you're going to give and love in such a way that it reflects the way that you wish you would be treated. So here's the thing. I don't have to do much work to have you think about what you want. You woke up this morning, and the first thing you thought, whether you liked it or not, was what you wanted. And and if we're not careful, you'll spend the rest of the day trying to get what you want. But just think in terms of like, all of those things. Jesus isn't, he's not saying deny or ignore those things. He's saying, imagine what it would look like to want those same things for others. Right? Imagine how radical it would be right, to want the people around you to experience the joy of coffee this morning as much as you wanted it. Imagine, imagine to want the joy and comforts that you desired first thing this morning for others. Do you hear how provocative it is? It's the death of self. And Jesus puts his money where his mouth is. He is that friend who loved and did for us what we could never do for ourselves. And notice, Jesus didn't just love people so that they would pay him back. Jesus loved people who could never pay him back. The beauty of this golden rule is how it appetize, is an appetizer for what we see in Jesus. Jesus doesn't love us like, oh, man, I'm going to get a good return on that guy or that girl. They're going to just going to really pan out. Instead, Jesus says, this will never return. This will never pay off. Instead, I'm going to demonstrate great love and grace. And because they can never pay me back, that's why I'm going to give everything I have. Make no mistake about it. The ethical result of God's revelation is love. And that love is a death of self. The next section, we get another picture of what it means to respond faithfully, beginning in verse 13 and all the way to verse 14. He says, now then enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is easy. Now, the language he uses here, he uses the word straight and the word narrow. So maybe if you're not a believer, not a Christian, not familiar with the Bible, if you've ever heard someone talk about the phrase, the, the straight and narrow This is where this comes from. It comes right out of Jesus' teaching. The catch is you might not actually hear what he's saying. He's not saying straight as in S-T-R-A-I-G-H-T. 
as in there's like an absence of serpentine or curve, right? He's saying straight as in S-T-R-A-I-T. That's not a word we use except, for example, a straight jacket. So that word literally means to constrict. Sometimes it's even used to, to, the connotation is of strangulation. And so the straight and narrow is a constricted, narrow. It is a, it's a difficult, a strenuous, a, a, a strangled path. And so Jesus is saying here, you should expect what I'm calling you to, to be difficult. You should expect it. But he also says something that's profound. Hear the provocative nature of this statement. Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction or death. And those who enter it are many. A lot of people are going to go in this wide, easy path. However, verse 14, for the gate is narrow and the way is hard. You hear that, that language? That it's constricted. It's lonely. That leads to life, and those who find it are few. Notice what Jesus is saying here and, and how provocative it really is for you and me in the, in the depths of our own heart, but also even for society in general. Every single person is on a spiritual path that has life and death consequences. This is what I meant, but it's impossible to take Jesus' teaching seriously here. And in many ways, I would rather you at this point reject him and his teachings altogether than to somehow appropriate these things intellectually and not let them provoke you and change you. He is saying that there are only two paths. Now, this is profound. Most of us have been raised in a culture in which Underneath it, the, 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 idea of, uh, the idea of tolerance, the idea of religious pluralism has taught most of us to believe that all paths end up in the same place and they're all equal. Right? They're, they're, they're all, like your, your decisions are just as good as mine. They're, they're not morally superior or inferior to mine. And, and, and here's the thing, even though that's widely held, I want you to see Jesus is, is provoking you and I to, to weigh it for what it is. Because after all, if you say... Right? If you say we're all right, all ways are equally valid, that puts you in two difficult positions. One is it's internally contradictory. Right? So the minute you say all views are equal, the minute I say that, like, hey, I think you're wrong, then you have to say, well, even that view is equal, right? Like, which is which is self-defeating, right? If you're like, all paths lead to the same place, and I'm like, you're wrong. Right? That this this idea of, think of it as like when you, when you, begin, to, when you begin to enforce a, a doctrine of tolerance, you have to become intolerant, which is what Jesus is saying. They're not all equal, right? So even if you're like, hey, you need to tolerate everything, and I'm like, I don't tolerate that. Even, even, even if you don't, like, think of it, even if you go like, no, no, you have, that is a form of intolerance. Telling me that I have to tolerate is a form of intolerance. And Jesus says, you shouldn't avoid that. That's what it means to be human, that's what it means to reflect God's image, to actually discern righteous from unrighteous, just from unjust. Stop avoiding it. Where's the second thing it, it, it leaves you with? It leaves you with a position that's untenable. You can't maintain it. Because if all paths lead to the same place, then, you have to, then this means you have to kind of publicly and clearly go like, hey, Hitler had some really great things going for him. His path was just as good as yours, right? 
So you put yourself in a morally untenable path in which you can't actually point out what's evil, what actually destroys humans or, or is, like, is unethical. So just, just realize here, Jesus is, is pressing into us something that you and I probably feel, and even now you feel the tension. Are you saying that most people will miss out on God for eternity? Are you saying that very few people will be saved? Remember, I'm, I'm not saying it. Jesus, I hate. But just for a moment, begin to forget me for just a moment. Would you let Jesus disagree with you for a little bit here? Would you let Jesus challenge your thinking? Because what he says here is that there are not multiple paths with one final destination. There are two paths, and there are two destinations, two gates, two ways to live. You'll see this. There's two trees, and there's two foundations next week. Now, I'm going to encourage you for just a moment. If maybe you're not a Christian, that, that, I, want you, I want you to press into this. I know how offensive that is. I absolutely know. And I just want to encourage you, um, starting in verse 23, while, while right here, I think he's saying something that offends everyone outside of Christianity. Hang on, next week he offends everybody inside Christianity. Okay, so just he's an equal opportunity offender. But, but if you're in this room and you're not a believer, I want you to take this seriously, that Jesus is, is posing to you a thought-provoking position. Jesus is inviting us to consider some things, that there are only two ways to live, a way that results in life that is difficult, lonely, constricting, and a way that leads to death and destruction that's popular, easy. Now, in some ways, you already know this. This is how God has made the world, right? We, I mean, I, the best example, I get, like the, the people this morning who led us in, in, in musical worship, right? They have entered the narrow way. They have entered the strangulated way of learning a musical instrument so that now they have the freedom, the spacious, and right, they have, the, they have, they have all the space in the world to play songs. So think of it as that's how God made the world, right? Like there's things that you have to intentionally, right, you have to strangulate your own path. You can't just do it, right? If, if I just said, hey, do you want to do everything in the world? Do you want to be everything you could be? Everything? All of us would be like, that'd be great. I'd like to be everything, right? Like, but even you, you occupy a space in which you occupy because you have intentionally said no to, or in that, in that case, constricted your own path. You've, 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 you've thrown off, you've strangulated out other options to where now you likely, if, if you've done that well, you have freedoms. You've strangulated your options to learn how to read so now that you can read, right? You've, again, you, you've Think of any skill, any sort of artistic function. You have intentionally focused, you have studied, you have memorized, right? This is how God has made the world. That great value and great joy and freedom actually comes from great restriction and great cost. So he's saying something provocative I want you to hear. That those who actually see Jesus and find new life in him are few. And their lives are marked by loneliness and difficulty and struggle. I think Jesus is inviting each of us to consider here and even confront just how great the power of acceptance and the approval of others has over us. I think he's inviting us to contemplate the power of the mob. Because after all, a mob of people exerts great influence over us. I mean, who wants to stand up to a mob? 
Consider in the Old Testament people crying out to make a golden calf. And then consider the people crying out to crucify Jesus. I want to contend this morning that the world is actually an anxious system. Right now as much as it ever is. And Jesus is laying out a way of living that is free from the mob. That is free from the the flow of fear and uncertainty that drags us. Consider the prevailing notions about things you value. And how, and again, consider how much power it exerts over you. Consider the prevailing notions about things like dating and human sexuality. Who wants to stand up against those prevailing notions? Who wants to be called a bigot? And you begin to realize what Jesus is calling you to is, like we saw in verse 12, a death of self, a life that is provocative. And so he's saying, admit to yourself how powerful it is when you feel like you're the odd one out. Just be honest about it. Admit that it is difficult, it is painful, it is a straitjacket when you don't feel like you belong. I know many of you, even because of your own stories, you're in this room and that's how you feel. Jesus says, don't don't ignore it and don't dismiss it. Own it. Lean into it. Think seriously about what that is and recognize that Jesus here is saying that there is a rejected way, a difficult and lonely way that is actually full It is marked by abundant life, more full and beyond the bounds of what the majority of the people will ever understand or experience. Here the paradox, the narrow and constricted way leads to a spacious and free life. But the spacious and easy way leads to a narrow and constricted destruction and death. I think Jesus is also inviting each of us to consider and even confront how much the power of comfort has over us. Think of it as like, uh, we'll see next week a few of these, but there's, there's some false justifications in our own lives, and one of them that is confronted here is the phrase, everybody's doing it, right? Again, like the mob, if you're in the mob, you just fit in. But he's saying that that's not a healthy justification. In fact, it's, it's an admission of guilt. It's a, it's, it's a confession that these people and their approval has power over me that I have, that I have to come out from underneath. But he's also saying that that's true of comfort and ease. That language of being strangled, but also to hear difficult. And man, I I heard one author put it this way, that like ease and comfort is like the most self-evident, it's the most self-evident justification for almost everything we do. Right? If you're like, hey, I'm doing this thing, and you just said, well, it's easier. Almost everyone you know would be like, well, cool. No reason not to do that. That's going to make my life easier. Oh, why wouldn't I do that? Right? It's, it's just self-evidently justifiable. But notice, notice what he's saying here is that like, that also is a way of kind of bringing to the surface our, the power that comfort has over us. That comfort is our God. And he wants to, us to begin to contemplate the power that comfort has as a Lord over us. Now, let me add some just personal, some personal things here to encourage you. Now, that doesn't mean, as you see, like, this is the other thing, that you can swing in the opposite direction, and you can have kind of like a persecution complex, 
right? And every time something is difficult, you use it as evidence that you're doing the right thing. And I just want to, hey, I want you to consider the possibility you're not being persecuted. I just want you to consider the possibility you're a jerk, okay? So I'm going to put that out there. You might be being persecuted for following Jesus in the difficult and narrow way. That's possible. But because of what we believe about sin, it's more likely that you might just be a jerk. And people don't like you. Now, again, if, if you think that's harsh or unfair, I just want to roll a history tape of the last two and a half years, okay? Not everything is persecution. Some things are just the consequences of your decision. Be, so be very careful. Don't, don't take this as a, well, you know, this was difficult, so it must be the right thing to do. Like, no, it's foolish. That's why it's hard. Right, so, so be careful here. This, this is a call to discernment, just like last week. However, you will experience in following Jesus a real loneliness, a real pain, and a real suffering. And I don't, I don't want to begin to grind off the sharp edges of that. And instead, I just want to personally con- encourage you like, as a person who very much wants the approval of people, here's what I will tell you. The times in my life where I felt the most isolated, the times in my life I felt the most lonely, that my path has felt the most constricted and narrow, those are the times in retrospect that the Lord was the nearest to me. And so this is weird. Like, this narrowness is a picture of a path that you can't travel with many people. This picture of, like, there's not a lot of lanes on this. It's a path. And I want to encourage you. The Lord has met me in that narrowness, and he will meet you there. And I want to tell you personally, and many in this room would, would resonate, with, this would resonate, resonate with them because they know Jesus as well. You are better off on a narrow and lonely and difficult path with Jesus than in a big crowd with anyone else. And so for some of you that don't know Jesus, that might sound paradoxical. It might even sound contradictory. You want me to give up? You want me to give up the acceptance that I have widely? Yes. Because when you begin to experience the presence of Jesus narrowly, you realize how life-giving and full and spacious it really is. And for those of you who know Jesus, you know exactly what I mean. To be on that narrow path with him is the fullest and most life-giving way, even when it's strangling. The psalmist speaks of the broadness that God gives in his presence. But he says, Jesus says here that we're going to be okay with living according to Jesus' teaching, knowing that it won't make us popular. Here's a, one of the last things I'll say. It's like, this is, this is profound here. Most commentarians draw this, this exact conclusion in a variety of different ways. Disciples of Jesus stand out from the majority of the society in which they live. I, this is my, this is, this is my opinion here. I don't think you should spend a bunch of time and effort trying to make the ways and teachings of Jesus as popular as possible. When you mix Jesus and popular movements, you get popular movements and you lose Jesus. That isn't how it works. Jesus doesn't mix with popular movements. Jesus is Lord over popular movements. Otherwise, it's not Jesus. And those who find that way and experience that life, Jesus says provocatively, and I, I mean, I, with as much humility as you can muster, I want you to realize those people who experience this will be in the minority. And if that makes you like go, yeah, I'm, yeah, I'm on the winning team with a few people, right? you missed it completely. 
But if you hear this and go, think, if you think like, what grace, what grace is there that God would allow me to know and hear and experience the grace of Jesus? Right, if you look at the world and you're like, suckers, you're all, you know, you're following the crowd, as opposed to looking at the world and going like, I don't know how I'm not a part of that. I don't know why Jesus would save me out of that. So a word of warning. Most of Christians' efforts, most, spend most of their time trying to make following Jesus as broad and easy as possible. I've seen Christians in my own lifetime spend a great amount of energy and effort trying to disprove Jesus' words here. In my own lifetime, I've wondered what on earth like the moral majority is. As historically, historically would say it was a movement of evangelical Christians, evangelical, I mean, people who love and believe the gospel, creating a moral majority. Great, that comes with all sorts of benefits. But I wonder how much of that was done to just disprove Jesus' words here. Oh no, Jesus. We can get the majority. We can take this thing over. We can be Lord. Same with sexuality, generosity, and anxiety, all the things that have been addressed up to this point. Would you let Jesus confront you and your thinking here? Because here's the good news that's in this. He says there's a narrow gate and there's a narrow way. But do you hear the good news, the grace underneath it? There is a way. <laughs> there is one who has made a way. And he's saying, enter into life. Be suspicious of popularity. Right? Be, be skeptical of things that, that move broadly and affect lots and lots of people. Right? The ease and comfort as a self-evident good ought to be something that you and I are a little bit suspicious of. Like, that was really easy. Was that God's grace that he was just comforting me through the difficulty, or did I just compromise? Like, those are the questions we should ask and begin to discern by the power of the Holy Spirit. But friend, hear the good news. He's calling us to a way, and that way has been made. Someone has gone before you to make a way to life that is spacious and broad and full of freedom and joy and delight, and his name's Jesus. So hear the good news. He's calling you to a way because he has made one. He is calling you to live a life that looks different from the world because he's overcome the world. And he's invited us to take that narrow path with him. So here's the last section. I have to give you for, for verse 15 through 20 a, a crash course on false prophets. So in the last section, he's giving us a call to discernment, to discern what it means to love and follow him. So beware then of false prophets. Now, there's a tradition of what a, a true and faithful prophet of God is throughout the whole Old Testament. I'll summarize a little bit of here. And then there's even several warnings for the rest of the New Testament against false prophets. So think of it this way, a crash course in biblical prophecy. And, and, and again, I want you to, because of even the way this is saying, I want you to hold me, I want you to test this. In fact, I dare you to test this. Right? Read the, the tradition of the major and minor prophets. Okay? This is of the Old Testament. Read the tradition of the major and minor prophets. And what you'll find is, I, I, I point at least four things. They all pointed out sin or injustice. Every single one of them. A prophet of God pointed out sin or injustice in the world. Two, they called people to turn from that, to, to repent is the language we would use, to, to turn from that and to God as their only solution. Third, they warned of God's coming judgment and the consequences that were to come should they not turn from their sin. 
And then lastly, they offered grace and hope for those that would turn. Like, this is, that's the beauty of, of, of the, the tradition of the prophets. Like, this is all going to blow up. This is all going to burn up. You're gonna, the, the first chapter of Zechariah is all you need. Like, that's going to burn up. That's going to burn up. It's all going to blow up. But then it ends like, hey, by the way, he will sing over you if you'll turn to him. It's like, oh, okay. So, so notice the tradition of the prophets, they're sent by God to speak the voice of God to people who were wayward and warn them. Warn them. So, so think of like a shallow view of prophecy as someone who just kind of like predicts the future. Right? As though it's like a, someone who's kind of reading a crystal ball or reading your palm. That's, that's not it at all. A biblical prophet would speak the voice of God to people to turn from their sin, to, to think heavily about their sin and its consequences, to experience new life by, by turning away from that to God alone. False prophets will do the opposite of those things. They will minimize sin. They will encourage people to maintain the status quo. Hey, don't change. Keep going along like you are. And then they will offer false hopes for the problems that plague them. So let me give you a crash course on this. Deuteronomy 18 says it this way, but the prophet who presumed to speak a word in my name that I have not commanded him to speak or who speaks in the name of other gods, you hear that? A false hope. That same prophet shall, right? And he's like, hey man, it's not a big deal if you speak false prophecy. False prophecy. like, not at this point, right? For people who have just been delivered by God and or to, to begin to live in the promised land according to God's promises, it was like, hey, this is a big deal. It's a life and death kind of thing. And if you say in your hearts, how may we know that the, the word of the Lord has, or excuse me, the word that the Lord has not spoken, when a prophet speaks in the name of the Lord, if the word does not come to pass or come true, that is a word that the Lord has not spoken. So think of like the summary of that and the summary of Jesus' words here is time will tell and fruit will be evidence. Here's what he says the, at the end of that passage, though. The prophet has been, he's speaking of that false prophet, That's, that prophet has spoken presumptuously, and this is just kind of a side note I want to like kind of stick at you with. Is like, and he says, you need not be afraid of him. So, right, so if anyone's like, false prophet, it's the worst thing ever. He's like, no, it's not. That, that guy, that guy, that guy's going to just wait. Just sit back and wait. The Lord will do his thing. But they're always opposed by people who want to maintain the status quo. 1 Kings 18, when Ahab saw Elijah, that is God's prophet, this is what he said. Ahab said to him, is it you, you troubler of Israel? So, so listen what he was saying. He was saying like, you're, when you come and convict me of sin, you're making it miserable, not just for me, but you're troubling everybody, right? Do you hear that? Do you hear that anxious system kind of appealing to the crowd? You're met, you're going against everybody. You're making everybody uncomfortable. And Elijah's like, yes, that's, yes, because everybody's following you, right? So, so I want you to see those ingredients that, that, that the prophet of God speaks in a way that makes much of sin but calls people to turn from it, whereas opposition to that, a false prophecy, would be to disagree. So he answered, I have not troubled Israel, but you have your father's house because you have abandoned the commandments of the Lord and followed the Baal, right? false hopes, the idols. Prophet Ezekiel says it this way, the 22nd chapter, and her prophets have smeared whitewash for them, seeing false visions and divining lies for them, saying, thus says the Lord God when the Lord has not thus spoken. Did you hear, did you hear the picture again? Again, crash course on false prophecy, saying things that the Lord does not say, things, saying things that do not accord with the truth. 
Jeremiah 14 says it this way, And the Lord then said to me, The prophets are prophesying lies in my name. I did not send them, nor did I command them, nor speak to them. They are prophesying to you a lying vision, worthless divination, and the deceit of their own minds. So, crash course in false prophecy. It's going to happen. It regularly happens. We want easy solutions, and so we love to follow people that will give them to us. But he says here, Jesus says, look, one of the ways you know that you are in this kingdom is not just that, right, when we saw this, you begin to be free of the, the worldly anxiety. In this case, you, you begin to love people in the way that you want to be loved. We saw here, you begin to be okay with, with suffering the, the rejection and loneliness of following me because there's a joy that comes. And also here, you begin to discern my voice. You begin to discern what's true. And you're willing to let time and the fruit of that person play out. Now, here's what I'll tell you. Practically speaking, this, this is something, this is not hypothetical. This might be the most active and practical thing you'll hear today. He's saying, do this right now. Test even what I say. Test it. Is what I'm saying according with what Jesus is saying? Is it in accordance with this, even here, like with the Sermon on the Mount? If what I say is not backed up in Scripture, then friend, you're free to ignore it. After all, I didn't write this book anyway. You answer to the author of this book, with or without me in the room. Galatians 1.8 says it this way, Even if we or an angel from heaven, Paul tells the Galatian church, should come and preach to you a gospel contrary to the one who preached to you, let him be accursed. It's a really nice way to say like curses on that person. So even if someone... We're to speak, hey, hey, your sin is not that bad, and Jesus is not that good, but don't worry, I'm an angel. Even then, you can be like, thank you, angel. I appreciate you. Thank you for coming all this way. Uh, but curses on you. <laughs> good luck with that. You're under a curse. In fact, especially if an angel were to say that, and especially if someone like me or someone else were to tell you that an angel, hey, the Lord, an angel came to tell me, you ought to immediately go like, okay, hang on, I've read this book before. That's cool. You might be under a curse. So ask yourself, does, is what we're teaching and celebrating together here, is it leading people to love and serve Jesus more? Is it leading them to a deeper devotion and dependence upon Jesus? Does it lead more people to hear about the redeeming work of Jesus, then congratulations, you're in a good spot. Just ask yourself, does this lead people to have true or false hopes? Henry Nouwen, a, a Catholic scholar, put it this way. He says that, I am the prodigal son anytime, speaking of the, the one who runs away from the father, I'm the prodigal son anytime that I search for unconditional love wherever it cannot be found. Think of it this way. False prophets are those who sell unconditional love where it cannot be found. Like There's joy and hope. It's not Jesus. So look at what this presumes about us. One, we're a sheep meant to be in, we are sheep meant to be in a flock. And two, we are to discern. Just like last week, discerning dogs and pigs, divine things, doing divine things around us, test what I say. Jesus says so. And if it's backed up in Scripture, we praise God for it. 
But you can relax. Over time, the fruit will make it evident. And don't worry, Jesus says, you will see it clearly. So join us sheep. Join us sheep. Call themselves Connection Church. He doesn't give a picture of anyone who's like a sheep that's not in a flock. But he then says there's a, a way that these sheep can discern by telling who's who that you and I first and foremost are sheep, but time will tell if that's simply a ruse. So ask yourself some serious questions in light of this metaphor. Do you care about the health of the flock? Or are you just here to do whatever you want and you want someone else to tell you it's okay? Like, do you kind of do your own thing? Friend, I want you to hear the good news of the good shepherd who's laid down his life to draw you in. Secondarily, pray for me. Pray that I would see myself as a sheep first. That my words would be loving and caring for you. False Teachers can kill churches. But here's the scarier part. In the 20th and 21st centuries, false teachers can grow churches. This is why, practically, we've taken our time in installing and appointing elders to teach and shepherd our church, which we, I think we're going to get to celebrate in the next year. Why? Because we don't want wolves monitoring the doctrinal parameters of our church. The end of this sermon is a call for a decisive response, and he brings into relief exactly what's at stake. But I want you to see in each of these sections a picture of how Jesus puts his money where his mouth is and is all of the things that he's teaching. Jesus is the good prophet. He is the perfect prophet of God who fulfills the word and keeps his promise. Let's go back to Jeremiah. I commend uh, I commend all of the book of Jeremiah, but it's quite a lot. In Jeremiah 23, he says, Thus says the Lord, the God of hosts, Do not listen to the words of the prophets who prophesy to you, filling you with, did you hear that? Remember that I was saying? Like, unconditional love where it cannot be found, with vain hopes. They speak visions of their own minds, not from the mouth of the Lord. And so I commend the entirety of chapter 13 to you, but I want you to hear I want to hear what the prophet Jeremiah says that we find in Jesus. Woe to the shepherds who destroy and scatter the sheep of my pasture, declares the Lord. Therefore, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, concerning the shepherds who care for my people. He's speaking of the the good shepherds and the false prophets that were leading people astray while they were in Babylon. You have scattered my flock and have driven them away and you have not attended to them. Behold, I will attend to you for your evil deeds, declares the Lord. Then I will gather the remnant of my flock out of all the countries where I have driven them, and I will bring them back to their fold, and they shall be fruitful and multiply. I will set shepherds over them who will care for them, and they shall fear no more, nor be dismayed, neither shall any be missing, declares the Lord. For behold... The days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch, and he shall reign as king and deal wisely and shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. In his days, Judah will be saved, and Israel will dwell securely, and this is the name by which he will be called the Lord of Righteousness." 
Friend, Jesus is the one who truly loved those who could not ever pay him back. He is the one who endured the narrow, strangulated way, lonely and despised, all the way to the gates of hell, so that we would have life and a path and gates that lead to eternal delight. He is the true prophet of God who has promised to his people that a time of deliverance will come to path come to pass. And because he has loved us in ways that we could never love, because he has walked in the narrow ways in which way in, in, that we could never do ourselves, and because he has fulfilled his promise, now we live in mercy. That is, the worst sins that you and I have committed that haunt us, that we're unable to forget, are the very thing that God, because of Christ, has chosen to no longer remember. Because he has fulfilled his prophetic promise, we can turn to him and have abundant life. Because he's all of these things, we no longer have to earn God's love and acceptance and fear the rejection of the world. Because of Jesus and the way he has loved and followed and fulfilled these promises, God is not tempted to abandon you. God is delighted to receive you because of the perfect and selfless love of Jesus. His obedience on the lonely, narrow, and difficult way and his keeping of his promises allow us to now give ourselves fully to him and trust him. Would you just for a moment contemplate the narrow and strangulated way of the cross? Would you look into the grave? Would you look into that tomb and see how little room there is? And realize that it was through that narrow and constricted and strangulated way that Jesus has invited into the powerful way marked by life and life that is abundant. And now because of that, there's no sin that you and I can commit that can outweigh God's grace. We have the gift of knowing whose we are. Friend, Jesus has loved you and I in a way that we could never repay He has followed the narrow way in ways that you and I could never do. And he has fulfilled his promise to deliver his people. He is the good and true prophet. Would you look at him? Just see what he's like. Let him melt you with how he loves, even though we don't reciprocate it. Let him him win you over with how courageous and obedient he is, even to the point of death. And let him fill you with trust and hope knowing that as he shared and quoted the prophet Jonah, there's going to be a sign of a prophet coming. And just like Jonah was in the belly of a whale for three days, so also I will face death, a narrow and constricted tomb. But on the third day, you'll find out that you can trust me. Let's pray. God, thank you so much for Jesus. Thank you for what he has accomplished for us. Thank you for the price that he has paid. God, we confess that we would like to find joy and hope and love in places where it cannot be found. We confess that we regularly look to other things to be satisfied. Help us to hear the teachings of Jesus here as provocative as they really are and find hope in him. That he really does demonstrate the kind of love that that we all crave and desire by giving himself for us. That he really does demonstrate the kind of courage and fortitude we all desire by by enduring hardship. 
by being on a narrow and treacherous way. Thank you that he wins our trust by keeping all of your promises to redeem your people, to deliver them, to protect them from their own sin. And like Jonah, to be, to be brought where you meant for us to be third, on the third day. Thank you for the victory of Jesus that is the fulfillment of these promises. Thank you that he is our true prophet that we can trust. He's a true prophet by, we, by which we can discern what is true and what is false in the world. Thank you for all these things that come to us in Jesus. Now help us to respond in faith. Help us to see and behold him for all that he is and trust him. Help us to hear the thought-provoking words here that, that demand a response and help us to turn in faith. Help us to turn away from other ways of being to, to trust that he is the way, the truth, and the life. That the path he invites us to be on, he is prepared completely. And he has fulfilled his promise to get us all the way home. Thank you this is true in his perfect life and his death and his victorious resurrection. It's in all these things we come to you now. Amen.